Thank you for listening to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. This is episode 61, Act 2, Caitlin McCain, Finding Paths for Freedom Dreaming, recorded March 26th, 2023. Ooh, yeah, oh. I'm so damn tired of waiting. Perfect A plus B The one size fits all prudent kids all screaming about irrevocability Let's burn some bridges, earn some stitches And fight our own way free Cause the rules don't lie But they don't apply to people like you and me Let's start it up now 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 now they say it's all decided, all divided, all laid out. And the pushcart man with a three-part plan can't understand what you're shouting about. But when the past they plow, the lives allowed are the only roads you can see. Just remember who walls were built to fall for people like you and me. Let's start it up now. 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 Hey, hey, TA audience. Welcome to Teaching Artistry. This podcast is researched, recorded, and produced on the unceded lands, water, and air, stewarded by the Canarsie and Muncie Lenape peoples in what is colonially known as Brooklyn, New York. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks for being a part of our global community. Invite your peeps, colleagues, and friends to join our community and subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any podcast player. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Teaching Artistry Podcast and head over to teachingartistry.org to access episodes, guest bios, the newly redesigned Teaching Artist Companion e-zines, merch, and more. The Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body Pod Squad is super excited to announce its partnership with New York City Children's Theater in a series called In Conversation with Start the Conversation, highlighting their resources that provide grown-ups with the language and tools to start and continue nuanced conversations around big topics with the children and kids in their lives. Here's Caitlin sharing more details about this partnership. Start the Conversation is a resource that provides grown-ups with the language and tools necessary to start and continue nuanced conversations around big topics with our children. Through a combination of videos, activities, and resource guides, Start the Conversation uses children's literature and applied theater techniques to engage young people with themes such as race, racism, gender, politics, disability, mental health, LGBTQ plus identities, and more. When engaging with these topics, we center historically marginalized voices in the telling and teaching of their own stories and experiences by collaborating with teaching artists and experts from the community that we're engaging with. Start the Conversation hopes to bridge the gap between what we as adults know we must talk about with our young people, but don't always know how or where to start. The goal is to foster a generation of critical thinkers who have the social emotional skills, vocabulary and tools to mindfully and meaningfully engage with identities and experiences within and outside of their own. This collaboration with Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body was so exciting for me because 
my goal and New York City Children's Theater's goal is to get these resources out to as many people as possible and to start these conversations in our communities. And so we would like you to be part of that community. During the podcast, we're going to dig into three of our conversations that have been particularly relevant in these past few years and feature some of the topics that are closest to my heart. In each episode, you'll get to hear from some of the expert collaborators who worked on each project. They're my favorite people uh, and these resources would not exist without them. So we'll be exploring our relationship to race, exploring gender, and a conversation on emergency drill support. I'm really excited to have these conversations with all of you. This month, I attended the New York City Arts and Education Roundtable's face-to-face conference. This is an annual conference that started, I don't know how many years ago, but the roundtable is celebrating its 30th anniversary. So it was a big celebration. Um, The first conference took place at Riverside Church, and it hasn't been there for many, many uh, years. And so they celebrated um, by having it back at Riverside Church, um, which for was my first uh, was the location where my first uh, face to face conference was 22 years ago. Um, so you can imagine I was very nostalgic uh, for several reasons. One, it was the first um, full in-person conference that they've been able to hold since 2019. So there's that nostalgia, uh, being able to share space with my colleagues uh, um, over a two-day period. Um, in addition to that, um, you know, I feel like I'm, I might be having a midlife crisis, to be honest with you. I, I just feel like I keep like looking back and looking forward and seeing where I am now and like what's going to be my next chapter in life. And uh, and I guess you have to go back to, to go forward. Right. So anyway, so I was walking down the street towards the church and just, you know, it's really gorgeous. It's uh, Riverside Church is up um by Columbia and um you know it's just got a lot of beautiful buildings um and uh it's near Grant's tomb so it's and Riverside Park so and it was it was very hot and gorgeous days um so the weather was beautiful anyway I'm walking down the street just feeling like I'm walking down memory lane and thinking about how who I was when I first entered into that uh, into that church and into the conference and where I am now, you know, there's a little bit of like, remember VH1s? <laughs> where are they now? That's what I was feeling like. How did it all start? Good day, but anyway, that's how I was when I was walking towards the entrance. Um, yeah, so I learned a lot, actually. I was really pleased with the the sessions that I attended. It sounded like, you know, everybody was sort of there with good spirits, good energy, ready to receive whatever their colleagues had to share in their breakout sessions and the plenary sessions. Misty Copeland was the um, keynote and was very inspiring. Um, yeah, and I feel like, you know, there's still so much that we could be doing in this field. And these are the people who are about it you know they're about making 
and impacting change. Um, I also got to see um, or attend a session with Caitlin and her colleague Maddie, uh, who's the education director at um, New York City Children's Theater, um, where they were sharing resources, principles, um, concepts uh, around their uh, trauma-informed uh, toolkit. And that was really informative, actually. Um, so I had a really good time. Obviously, it's, it's made some sort of impact. So that's good. But that does bring me to Caitlin. So let me stop babbling and get to Caitlin. All right. So here in the second act, we uh, hear about Caitlin's current roles, both as teaching artist and as arts administrator. And we learn a little bit about uh, the resources that she and the New York City Children's Theater team have created, including what I referred to earlier as their trauma-informed cool toolkit, excuse me. And um, we round out the conversation, um, up learning more about her grad school experience, which she's um, ultimately thinking in terms of her master's thesis. And, um, and then we talk a little bit about like, why why do we do this work <laughs> um and who you know who are we thinking about when we are all right here is episode 61 act two caitlin mccain finding paths for freedom dreaming i mean i remember being um at the entry level position and having to pay back my loans for grad school it was definitely not making as much money as i thought i would be doing when i graduated and i needed I needed a second job. I was like, either I get a different job in a different industry or I figure out how to moonlight. And what does that mean for me? Like, I don't want to, I, you know, I made choices where I'm not going to go into the corporate world cause that's going to just suck me dry and I can't. So I ended up being like, well, what, how much more money do I actually need to like just live yeah. within my means and not feel so strapped. Um, and so I ended up getting a job as an usher at a theater and I was like, at least I, that this way you can still see theater be in the theater world and make money and you'll do that for as long as you need to do. And then it was like any other gig I can take, I'll take whatever it takes. I'm still like that. I think that where my brain was starting to go in terms of, I just talked about retirement <laughs> and like where I am now is that I, I sometimes, uh, I appreciate what you said about privilege. Like I am, I'm, acutely aware of my privilege but there's this other piece of me a part of me here that still feels like I'm that you know that kid who just graduated from college and you know just had has nothing like no money very little in their checking account maybe a negative and I it's hard for me to reconcile who I you know those two folks like that's where I was. That's not where you are now. Like you are on top of like the other day, this is not to brag or anything, but the other day I got like a notification that like I was pre-approved for a mortgage. Not that I'm looking that currently I'm not looking for anything, but like that amount has jumped by like $200,000. And I was like, even though I was like, I can't afford that. <laughs> I can't afford that interest rate. I can't, you know, but it was a moment for me to be like, what? oh, well, because you're getting more and more financially literate and you're making choices that are helping, like you're working, basically you're working the system the way we all should be able to. But what, but the other flip of that, now thinking about this person over here, this, you know, but like, how do I, where's, where's my responsibility to support others who are where she was um, or, or even less privileged than she was because she did have something to fall back on. Um 
and parents really to fall back on. Um, okay, we're this is a whole line of it. We keep talking about it, but we need to move forward. We need to move forward. Okay, so let's talk about the work that you're doing. So I, I you know, I feel like I got a sense of like you were in college, um, and now you're in um, the MA Applied Theater program. Do you want to talk about that program, or do you want to talk more about the current work that you're doing? I feel like they overlap, but I, the work I'm doing. Yeah. Cause it, the MA has informed so much of that. And I also have tried to find a lot of opportunities to intersect those two. Um, yeah. Great. So talk, talk to us. So we, you know, we know that we're featuring a whole bunch of really amazing work by New York city children's theater, um, called start the conversation. And you mentioned earlier that you started in, in one role as an apprentice and you've sort of been back and forth between artistic and the education departments. And now you're firmly rooted in education. And uh, what I don't think I understand, sorry, if I could take one half step back, yeah, is where, where you started doing teaching artist work. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. I left that out. Huh? Um, so in the apprenticeship, um, that is when I, so part of, it was like learning by doing, which was so wonderful. And so essentially Sarah and Alex would ask like, what are you interested in? And then they would have you shadow people. And then in the second term, cause it was a full year in the second half of the year, you would take on a residency, like either co-teach with someone. So, um, I co-taught with Alex, um, and we taught at a D 75 school. And so that was like my first formal residency. Can you explain what a D75 school is? Oh yeah, a District 75 school. So um, that is the districts that house um, young people with disabilities and in district terms, special needs um, in New York City. That's how they qualify it. Right, so districts in um, in New York City are based off ge- ge- geographic right? Geographically, except for D75 schools, those could be placed anywhere geographically, but they specifically have a student population of students with all different kinds of disabilities. Um, And then there's D79 schools, which are students, um, generally students who are court involved or um, have other kinds of um, court involved, you know, issues. And needs, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that was my first formal residency and and um, a space that felt very much like home to me. Um, and also, and then my, I did, um, we had a program, um, I'm, oh, uh, Boogie Woogie Books, and it was a f- program for the very young, like zero to three. And I did that program um, as part of my apprenticeship and we would do like, it was with a music, um, teacher. And so that was really exciting to work with the very young. And then my final residency was in our, our shelter program at our transitional housing facility program. Um, so I was teaching at a shelter, I think I was in Manhattan and I was co-teaching with another apprentice. It was like towards the end. So during that, I got to try on a lot of hats in teaching artistry. And then the next year after, which is like that same time that I became a gala assistant, um, I was working as a, a teaching artist for them. So that was like, they hired me after and I really got to dig in to the teaching artist world there. And I I think I was the first teaching artist to be working in every single program they offered. So I there's not a program I haven't done at the children's theater. 
um, which was really exciting. So I was in schools a lot and I was doing, I was in, the, they, we have a touring musical called five and now Cinco. Um, and so I was doing that. So puppetry and song and residencies and yeah. Um, so that, yeah. So I'd been working as a teaching artist throughout this entire time. And I still do teaching artist work, um, with them in addition to my role in public engagement. And do you work, uh, do you do teaching artist work in any other capacity beyond Stella Adler? Um, no, actually. Um, I, I think because of the time that like I got into teaching artistry, I did, a, I mean, I've done a little side work with some organizations, like some one-off things, but I never formally worked as a teaching artist with other organizations, which is kind of weird because so many, I mean, I work with them in different capacities, but I never went through like hiring processes because the pandemic happened, uh, like seven months after I graduated. Okay. So talk more about the, the current work that you're, you're doing. And you said that it's been, I mean, you talked a little bit about it before, but like what, f- from the start of the pandemic to now, how would you encapsulate the work that you do? Virtual. <laughs> so I would encapsulate it. Um, I'm like thinking of like, what's coming to my brain is like words, responsive, I think is what, how I would describe the work because it was responding to, and it, and luckily a lot of it has continued and changed shape to fit, you know, our, our kind of hybrid world now, but in the beginning, it was responding to the needs of young people and families um, and figuring out so Nicole Hogsett, who we get to talk with in later episodes, um, had this vision for something called Creative Clubhouse, which was like a digital platform that had activities and videos and read-alongs um, and read-alouds for, for children and families to engage with in the pandemic. And so I took on Creative Clubhouse Stories which was bringing, so New York State Children's Theater used to be called Making Books Sing. So all of our our mission is rooted in children's literature and social development and literacy. So we were activating books that had to do with themes that were connected to the pandemic in some way. So we started with like isolation and loneliness um, and anxiety and anger um, and you know, digging into these topics and then through books. And we would do, I would do a live class every week, um, creative clubhouse stories and folks would come on. I mean, like as little as like one to two years old, like in high chairs and with their older siblings and we would play and we'd explore stories and we'd do theater activities and, um, and we'd create videos that we would, you know, use to promote, but also to have, you know, um, asynchronous asynchronous is the one where you're not connected where it's not we are synchronous right now yeah (laughs) so where we would they would have asynchronous options you know uh, for folks who didn't have internet access you know or had sporadic internet access um and it was just like honestly a weekly response of like okay this is and then next and then next and then next Um, and luckily our executive director at the time was in full support of this. Um, and our artistic director was in full support of it and 
brought me on part-time so that it was, I was no longer on a contract. And, and then I was part-time and I was creating these things and we started connecting them to shows and, um, but it was all really a response. And then that got us into, you know, late spring, early summer of 2020. Um, and we saw the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement. And then that was another response. And that's how Start the Conversation started. Um, of, you know, you were talking about earlier when you said like that, that thought of, you know, combining the person that you are now and the, you know, financial literacy you have now versus the person back there in the past who didn't have that. And like, what is your responsibility to them? That really stuck with me because that's what start the conversation is for me. It's, that's where I feel like I am uh, committing to my responsibility to educate and start having conversations about things that we haven't done financial literacy yet, but now I'm thinking <laughs> maybe that's my next topic, but that, um, that like things that I wish, yeah, things I wish someone had talked to me about, um, when I was a child. So that's, yeah, it's all been responsive and then it, it spiraled from there. I'm just something I don't think I, I ask, maybe we talk a little bit about it in the exploring race uh, segment, but who are your, who's your demographic? Like who, who who's your audience demographic uh, from a racial perspective? Excuse me. I know that our demographic says like our audience are, are majority white. Yeah. And that was definitely the case in my classes that we always had young people and families of color, but I, it was at least 50%, if not more white um, in each of the classes. So when we started making the start the conversation and those resources, I think the families that I had been working with were in mind. Um, so knowing that I had young people of color and I had a lot of white families and people and young people, of, um, and white young people. So, and of all different mixes, right. There was, um, multiracial families, um, of course, in that mix. So I, it's both, it's a mixed audience when, when we're creating these resources. And I think often that's something I'm thinking about now is like, what are the resources that are for young people and families of color and how, cause they're different. Like the needs are very different. Those conversations are very different. And I think for me, I am so often thinking about the harm that I've been caused by white folks and lack of knowledge that I think more often than not, I'm thinking, what are the ways we can invite white people into these conversations? Um, especially the ones on race, right? Um, yeah, that how can we invite them in? Because maybe that will mitigate some of that harm, I think is something that I'm like personally at with those resources. So two things that are coming to my mind, well, three. One is, you know, just the very specific need for arts organizations to really dig into those statistics and answer some and interrogate themselves on how what that means 
and if they want to change it, what strategies they're going to do to to make changes in terms of those percentages um, in a way that feels uh, not tokenizing and, um, you know, really working on building spaces of belonging for folks where most spaces are meant to keep them out. I don't think that people have been like intentionally, you know, creating spaces that where one cannot belong, but that the intentionality behind making sure everyone feels like they belong is, is, um, highly necessary. And, and, and something that I know that like, uh, new, new, new victory and new 42 are really, really having some intense conversations around in, in a good, in what I think is finally a good way. Um, and, um, and that's not like it wasn't happening before, but I feel like there's a, just a different way that we're going about having those conversations that feels really hopeful. Um, so that was the first thought is just like, I think a lot of organizations, many organizations probably are doing that. Yeah. yeah. And I like that what you talked about, about how, how to, you know, how can we create resources that invites so that more, there are more opportunities for, for harm reduction over time, um, is really lovely to hear. Um, the, th- the second thing that was coming to my head is I, I was thinking about, yeah, the financial literacy. I think that's a big deal. I feel like you're right. Like the whole concept of who who gets access to that kind of information is so uh, um, dependent on on your family life and your and who's helping and like you know the old trope of like I I got here by myself. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. <laughs> That's your bootstraps were made by somebody else and tied, and they lifted you up, whether you think you that happened or not. Anyway, um, so th- so thinking of this as a bootstrap. Um, that that lifts <laughs> um, is is a really interesting way and then that my third so that's that and then my third thinking and on, honestly that would help me and I'm not I'm just a grown-up I'm not talking to kids but I could uh, <laughs> um, but the the final thing that I was that was coming to my brain was just the like immense amount of content that has been developed in what, you know, feels like a pretty short amount of time and the like very clear intentionality around these very, these specific topics. Um, there's videos, there's guides, there's, you know, there's, so there's written work, there's scripts, scripting, there is timing and scheduling. <laughs> like I'm talking about like how the watch was made, but just like the bevy of resources that are existing and that you all have like produced and now exist into the world is really remarkable um, and very impressive. And like the new, uh, you know, not to do too much comparison because our, our missions aren't exactly the same, but like it was the same thing when that pandemic hit, we were like, people are going to be home. They need to have arts. We made videos. We were able to convert, you know, all these workshops that were no longer taking place to make sure that our artists were getting paid by making these videos. And then those videos have such a life beyond that's not a money making thing, but it is um, an impact making uh product and now you know because we're in this hybrid world i'm just curious like the appetite for vi- for those kinds of videos and video work was so much larger because we were all stuck at home and now that we're in this i don't even know intra pandemic it's almost over bull poop i don't know um moment that like the hybridity is not even it's like 
it's switching to the to be the other way you know there's a lot we could talk go down that rabbit hole (laughs) if we wanted to but the question I that is popping for me is as you are thinking about new topics and um promoting the work that you've already um that you've already created um you know what do you see as the um the the possible impact of this work that was something that I we sat with and that I sat with of like okay the appetite like you were saying of virtual content is I think maybe even less in some um instances than before the pandemic because we were so oversaturated with it um but I think the hope is is that we learned during the pandemic that there are an abundance of resources and that there are people that we can now connect to so much further away um, than before. And we know it's out there that like thinking about attending a conference in like, if you're in New York, that's in California may not have even been on your radar because you're like, oh, I do not have the money to hotel and fly. And it, no, it's, I'm not even gonna think about it. I'm gonna look at New York central things, but that that has shifted, I think for permanently. And like things are bigger now. So I, I think the hope is, is that these resources, because one, our world is getting bigger and we're interacting with more people. And in some ways that makes it smaller, you know, like it, bigger and smaller at the same time, we need to have these conversations more than ever. And going to the internet and going to digital resources like this is becoming a norm. And so I hope I want those resources to be there. Um, And yeah, that, that like the conversations we're having too, I think we think about as like adult conversations but they're just human conversations, you know? And you don't become a human when you turn 18. (laughs) Like you're a human from the like moment you pop out, you know? So like, can we, that's why like, I don't wanna exclude young people and children from these conversations. So it's like the resources that are out there are, are adult centered. And I think that's like why, even like for folks looking at like, it's like, is this for children? Is this for adults? Like the answer is both. I don't know. There's not, why are we trying to define it? Um, that really it's accessible. Um, it's a form of access because it's for many different learning levels. It's for teens who want to, you know, who maybe have a younger sibling or, you know, it's, it's for everyone. So you had, you had mentioned earlier about trauma-informed practices and, and um, can you talk, uh, can you talk about your experience, uh, your growth experience in terms of that work and the work that um, New York City Children's Theater has to offer. My introduction to trauma-informed practice, um, and when we say trauma-informed practice, we're talking about the idea and the assumption that every room you walk into, someone will have experienced some type of trauma and that this is a healing-centered approach that only benefits everyone in a room. Doesn't matter if you've experienced trauma or not. If you've escaped trauma, amazing, good. And this will still help you. Um, so when we're looking at this approach, I was introduced to it at the children's theater because that's, um, 
we have a program, I talked about it a little bit of like, we have programs and shelters and transitional housing facilities across New York. And we've done that for many years and it's shifting now because of the pandemic uh, kind of shifted it, but we're back in it. And it was really crucial that our teaching artists had that training and that background and a trauma-informed approach going into those spaces. So that's where I got introduced to it. And um, we work from the six principles of a trauma-informed approach. So uh, let's see if I can remember them. <laughs> Safety, trust and transparency, empowerment, voice choice, collaboration and mutuality, identity and validation, and peer support. Six, yeah. So those are the principles that we're looking at and they show up and intersect in a lot of different ways. Um, and I got to really deepen my learning. Um, I think my interest for it came in, I took a, um, I guess I lied. My introduction was not at the Children's Theater. It was like my formal introduction in the arts world. But at NYU, I minored in child and adolescent mental health studies. Um, so it was always something that I was interested in. And I took a trauma class. And so that had informed. So when it came into that conversation, I was like, ooh, I kind of know something about this. It's really important. What are we doing? Um, I got to collaborate with um, the education department over the pandemic to create the trauma-informed toolkit for educators, um, which is a resource of asynchronous um, training modules for educators that teach about this trauma-informed approach um, and using it in um, different child-centered settings. And it's like working with teaching artists and learning through that. So I got to deepen my learning and practice by talking with the experts that are um, part of that resource. And it was just really eye-opening for me because I got to engage with so many different perspectives of trauma-informed approach, if that makes sense. Like we had social workers, we had licensed creative arts therapists, um, you know, working with different populations in, in schools and in foster care and, um, you know, professional treatment settings and doing that at the same time that we were experiencing this collective trauma of the pandemic was important for me and like my own healing and, and processing of that and also really helps me prepare going back into teaching settings because if you're a teaching artist out there, you noticed they're different um, and there's different needs. Uh, yeah, so that that's trauma-informed is like, it's really just human-centered. Yeah, I, I, human-centered, healing-centered. Human-centered, healing-centered, and that's... Even if you haven't been through like a, a, a massive trauma or traumatic event, anything could have happened before a teaching artist walks into a given space anything uh, to any one of the the or more of the people and you can start to sort of see see instead of thinking that there's a quote-unquote behavior problem it's actually a trauma response to edit and you don't need to know why that's not that's not that's not gonna support anything anyway um in that particular in any given moment but um yeah we we um at new victory we, we spent the better part of the fall working with Bartol Foundation um, in, in this work and are um, hopefully going to continue working with them. It's, I think it's been really, really helpful, not only for uh, teaching artists practice, but actually our community. We have been, th as a community, we've been yeah. through so much 
um, and the idea of, of seeing each other and being in space. And we also were transitioning from everything, uh, all trainings being virtual to working more regularly as a community in person trainings. And most of our, uh, the majority of our work, uh, teaching work is in, in person. So that the ability to take time to really, th- you know, learn the ba- the foundational concepts and then to start to think through what does this mean in practice? Excuse me. That's been really, really helpful. I think we still to feel like it's embedded. <laughs> I think we need some, we have more work to do, but it was a really great start for us. And, and that, that idea of healing centered was human centered, um, being at the heart of it. Um, in any given space, whether it's, you know, kid centered or not, but I can feel it. Like we just had a training last week and I, I don't, I don't know. I had a moment where I was just like, we're all so happy. It freaks me out a little bit, but it also brings me so much joy to see us in a space laughing and also asking hard questions of our work. you know, and, and figuring out how do we make this, this lesson plan that, you know, a handful of our folks have made to make it stronger through our pillar. Like, it's just, there's a lot of, it's important. It's important work. So, um, and, and, um, is this work something that anybody could, uh, commission meaning trainings or, and the resources, how do they get them? Yeah. So the toolkit is available. Um, it, that is not a free resource. That one is behind a paywall. Um, so that's available, um, traumainformedtoolkit.org. And then we also do professional developments um, in connection. So it's always rooted in that toolkit because that's where our expert voices are. That's where our teaching artist voices are. Is there a topic that we haven't covered that you want to make sure we do? The only thing that is coming to mind, and it came up when you were talking about like everyone being in a space together and like laughing and being joyful time has been like at the forefront of my brain. I think it has to do with my thesis that I'm working on too, of like, what is time in our profession, in our field? How do we make time? Why is there never enough time? Could there be enough time? You know, like, if we, and I think that's something like in a trauma-informed approach too, is making time for the humans in that space. Mm-hmm. And that can leave space for joy and laughter. And like what you were saying, like, that's what time you had time to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's what I'm thinking about is like, how does time impact our work, especially post 2020? Um, I'm not gonna say post pandemic cause we're not posted, but you know, post 2020 beginning of pandemic you know, if the, if the 1920s was the roaring twenties, cause I was after world war one, yeah. um, you know, the 2020s, um, very much is, and you know, this happened, I feel like this happened in the, in the 1920s too, where people were actually like, m- had more tools at the time to sort of investigate how they felt about things. You know, like that war was very, war in general was very traumatic. I don't know if we did the same after world war two, but Um, but I feel like right now that's where we are is that we're actually like saying, Hey, you know, how we have been living is, is not all it's cracked up to be. And we could do this better. Um, so I like the question that you're asking about time, like 
that sense of urgency is constructed. It is not real. It is not real. And to, you know, work against that is, is definitely, um, an important piece of the puzzle, but to work against it in the, with the goal of taking care of each other makes it it's not so like the concept of like being lazy if you don't just keep going 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 you must be lazy that's not it you're tired we're all tired (laughs) we're tired and to give ourselves some time and also to be able to think and be intentional and the the work the give the the work the possibility of going in depth as opposed to just growing for just to grow because you know in the nonprofit industrial complex that's all it is it's a numbers game and we're all fighting for the same amount of money and it's all scarcity amount of bullshit but what if we lived our life or went from a place of abundance and actually looked at each other from a place that we already have wealth not necessarily money but we all have resources and things to give and that we can actually build something um build something that is um you know interconnected so in your own practice what is a big question or questions you're asking yourself mm-hmm. yeah I think that time question for sure mm-hmm. um something I'm asking myself and again I think this connects with time and like the work I'm doing my thesis project. Do you want to share what you're doing in your thesis project? We're looking at freedom dreaming um, and this idea that I was really interested in like the space that art can make for dreaming something different. That like there's a um, Robin D.G. Kelly has a quote um, in his book, Freedom Dreams, about like so often we know what we're fighting against and we don't often know what we're fighting for. And that what art can do is it can open up that space for dreaming and being able to imagine something different so that we know what we're moving towards, not just what we're fighting against. Um, so in a short summary, that's what it's looking at. But, and I've been thinking about like, what are our barriers between being able to dream and imagine and, and reality? Like what, what's in between that? And so I've been thinking, the question I'm asking myself is like, how have we internalized things like, uh, mine's looking at the education system. So like how have we internalized the education system and its connection, you know, if we're looking at abolition, like if we want to abolish systems, do we first have to abolish our internal systems and reconnect to humanness? So that's what I'm thinking about. How do we do that? Ooh, uh... Ooh, that's it. That's all. <laughs> yeah, I know. I that's all I have too. <laughs> that's gonna be my paper. Ooh, this is resonating with the with the question I've asked in many different ways, and never feel like I, I hit it exactly right about liberated world justice. Um, but I like the idea. Of, I've never. I've. I don't know this book. Freedom dreaming. I I like freedom dreaming and like dreaming new things into existence and um, imagineering. So if we were to imagineer, imagineer, which part of the internal work, like that, you have to do the internal work to get to the external and the systems, right? But how do how do we get to a more liberated 
arts and culture world. What do we have to do? What do we have to do to, to do you think? What do you, what do we have to do to? <laughs> the question is what? Move in yeah. <laughs> what don't we have to do? Uh, myself included. Um, I think we have to feel like, I think I feel like, I think, I think I feel a lot, but I am realizing like, when do I shut feelings down even as an artist? So I think we have to feel through it. And I think a movement forward is people giving up power. And I know that's like, that's something people talk about a lot. And I think I've said it before from like a, a, a distance place of like, y'all need to give up your power. And I'm like, oh, but also I have power that I need to give up to, even as a black woman, even as a mixed black woman, even as a queer black woman, like I have power I need to give up to. And that's going to mean we're all going to be uncomfortable in some way. So I think that's it. And I say that knowing that I'm still not uncomfortable enough, if that makes sense. Word, word. We, we, we're in the midst of, speaking of time, like the, the give work that we do, where it's three different organizations, we've got like 20 or so um, teaching artists who work with us as trainers. And they're asking, you know, like, why are we, you know, basically we need to continue to make sure that all the, um, the inclusive practices that we're building into the workshops, modeling in the workshops themselves and are modeled in the resources that we have on the give site. We need to make sure we're also applying that to the back end. And when we don't, we're, you know, very rightly called in. And so we are in a process right now, like we've just been working at mock speed. We went from like, we launched this to now we're doing this huge dissemination model in one year (laughs) and without a break, not, not without a real break. And so one of the things that we're, I'm trying to do is find that time so that we can keep, we can keep reflecting on what we've done, what we really want to codify as the work we do before we launch into another phase of different kinds of um, professional development models. And they're, they're there, like they're all ripe for the picking, but I, I don't want to like, just be like, well, now we're in a new academic year and now we're, and we had a minute from closing one, one, you know, segment out and starting another and, um, and doing that with intention um, and not only that, but then also being really intentional about how much more workload we take on moving forward is another piece of the puzzle. And I think that part of that is making sure we're applying, sorry, applying the those practices into how we work together. And one of the conversations, one of the many conversations that we had in our last reflection session was around shared power and building out the power structure of the team because right now it's held in, in full-time staff mostly. And how do we actually disseminate that power, disseminate the power, disperse, excuse me, disperse the power so that it feels like we all not, it's clear. We all have stakes. We all have very, and we're invested. Oh my. But that, the model has to shift. The, the leadership model needs to shift. And so that giving up share, giving up power is part of actually redistributing the power. So that's, that's one way to think about it. And that's like, it does a tiny little microcosm of, of this field. Um, but something that is, is really helpful for me to be, uh, you know, for it to be more in the forefront. Um, so I appreciate you bringing that up. Okay. Last question. Yay. 
Last question is, do you have a question for me? Okay, so it's very much in the theme of like, I'm always thinking about little Caitlin and like young person, it's come up. So in all of the programs that you've created, facilitated, witnessed, if you could take little Courtney to one of them, which one would you take her to? Oh, that's really cute. I like that. Little Courtney, also precocious and silly. Um, I th- I have said this a couple of times. That I wish that the new victory existed when I was a kid. Uh, my parents would take us to see shows on Broadway and he, my, my dad was very happy to have us like see anything that was Shakespeare or like I Claudius, which if you've ever seen that series is, is not five-year-old appropriate at all. Um, but Neither so- is a chorus line. So it's okay. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Which I also saw at like seven. Um, but yeah, like, like great performances was a big thing that would play in our household a lot, or we'd go to see theater either, like I said, on Broadway, off Broadway, or um, in my dad's high school uh, or the local high school that I went to. And um, at home, I was just very, very theatrical, but not it all still felt distant to me, right? And so having something like the New Victory where we would go and we would be able to play in the lobby and just feel like this was a place that was made for me um, is is definitely something I, I wish Lil' Courtney had a chance to. I, I wonder if... if um, knowing who, who she's become, oh, now I'm talking about I'm in the third person, but knowing who she becomes as an adult, I wonder how much sooner I might've gotten into this field potentially, or, you know, what could have happened? I don't know, but just having that kind of, uh, that kind of space that, uh, I was seeing not just theater, but all different kinds of puppetry, like all of my understanding of circus, music, dance, um, anything that's not like anything is performing arts that's not theater uh, solely theater or even devised theater like that was a new thing for me all of that I learned at the new victory and by working with amazing teaching artists who helped me understand what these skill sets are and be able to like link it back or connect it back to my my expertise um so that's one I think the the classroom workshop like uh that program of having artists come in and like surprisingly come in, or maybe we knew like that I think would have been amazing for me as a kid. Again, I would have been able to just like maybe click in a little bit closer um, and feel a little bit more motivated to do the, 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 the other work. Um, if we had more teaching artists, we had some, we had like one or two, and we had assemblies, but we didn't have the kind of like programming that I designed. And, you know, when I started working at the New Victory, I, st- I was hired specifically to run the classroom r- workshop program. And then it just sort of billowed out from there in terms of um, my growing responsibilities and really focused on theater, uh, sorry, uh, school communities. And then the last thing I would say is just theater for, like I said, theater for young audiences, like being able to go to someplace like the New Victory, but also making theater um, and the idea of like understanding how to make theater and work as an ensemble. Um, so we don't have that program here, but like maybe a youth program, a youth theater program might've been something that I, I would have really dug, dug into that was not, that was outside of my school. Yeah. Like cat, like, like cat like or MCC or Epic. Um, yeah. Something like that, where I was going to be able to tell you know, my own stories and create my own characters and do that. Cause I was doing that anyway. I was just doing it in my den yeah. <laughs> uh, and like yeah. playing with my friends. Yeah. yeah. Of course, 
Oh yeah, no, I, there was a whole production that I, I I produced, I directed in my backyard. I, we had this huge backyard in one of the houses that we lived in. And in the summer, like instead of having like a birthday party, I organized a show. Like my parents were like, you know, because we only had big birthday parties for five, 10, sweet 16. And that's, that's it. So we had like, where you had like all the friends. So on one of those off birthdays, I was like, I want to put on a show. And my friends and I did skits. We had tickets. We had seating in the backyard. I mean, like the whole nine yards. And I produced this show with my friends and I will never forget it. And it was really good too. Even then I was like making theater. Well, theater. Right. That's what kids do. They make theater. They make theater. That's what we do. But yeah, I, I think those those particular things. I might have also enjoyed being a, an usher in a youth program. Yeah. 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 Seeing the like other side of it, knowing that there's yeah, that those are jobs that yeah. like, yeah. Like the kind of jobs that I had in high school, I, I at first it was babysitting and then I worked at a movie theater, which is as close to what everybody worked at the concession stand or the ticket takers. And then I worked at the library as the AV person. (gasps) Full circle. I worked at the public library in town. My mom loved and I loved and I was the AV person and I loved it. And oh, oh, this is a story. This is a fun story is that um, sometimes we'd have to set up for like events and you'd set up the microphone and then I'd have to test the microphone. And oh, boy. There was one time when my boss came in and was like, do you know that we can all hear you? Because I was having a full on like public speaking moment to myself. And he was like, stop. <laughs> Please stop. I was like, oh, the mic works. Thanks. <laughs> don't, don't give a theater person a mic unless you mean it. Exactly. Unless you mean it. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Always ask me that question before. It's I love it because you get a little peek into. I think you you just explained to all of us why you do this and like how you got here because that's what you needed well any any last words to wind down i've got no more words except thank you and gratitude well thank you this has been a delight i am really looking forward to showcasing all the work that we have um in the next two months or this month and next month and um i hope you have a great rest of your sunday thank you you too Thank you for listening to episode 61, act two of Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body, Caitlin McCain, Finding Paths for Freedom Dreaming. Join us next time when we are in conversation with Start the Conversation. This podcast is edited and produced by Ben Weber. Christopher Totten is the director of creative content. Jonna Waldman wrote and performed the theme song. Tim Palin designed the logo. Visit us at www.teachingartistry.org and head to the pod shop at the top of the page for merch. Find us on Instagram at Teaching Artistry Podcast and now on YouTube. Check out the Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body channel and watch We Can't Go Back. Like our page on Facebook, listen to us on SoundCloud and Spotify, subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to share this podcast with all the teaching artists in your life. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now.